You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Sorry, that was probably just picked up on the recording, my clap. (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to uh, week three of 1 Kings. Did everybody do their reading this week? Yes. Yes? Did anybody kind of skip over sections? No? Well done. Okay, good. (laughs) All right, well, we're going to hit tonight. We're going to be looking primarily at 1 Kings chapter 9 through chapter 12. Okay? So let me uh, begin with prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Lord God, we come before you, recognizing that we are dependent upon you. Our lives will only work insofar as they're connected to you. And we do pray that you would speak to us through your word this evening. So grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. May you soften hard hearts. And then we pray that the life of Solomon and and all the details would intersect with many of the aspects of our own life. Help us to draw those connections. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to uh, finish off our, our look at Solomon. And when, we're, when I looked at Solomon, I was thinking about his life. I was uh, reminded of a talk that I heard from a fellow a number of years ago, about six or seven years ago. And this fellow talked about this, these words, a shadow mission. Has anybody ever heard of a shadow mission do you know what I'm talking about yeah shadow mission has anybody ever heard of shadow mission anyone thumbs up yeah so what is a shadow mission a shadow mission is um, there are things that you allow in your life dynamics that you allow into your life that can drive the trajectory of your life in wrong directions if you allow it. And the danger is, we can carry on thinking that we're doing okay, we're doing the right things for the right reasons and getting the right results, but underlying our motivations, there may be motivations that may not be as honoring to God as we'd like to think. And sometimes we can't even see it. We need other people to point it out. So, for example, uh, I remember a number of years ago um, hearing about the, uh, talking to this pastor. And uh, this pastor was quite a preacher. He was, boy, could he ever preach. He was known within our denomination as one of the best preachers around. And, um, and whenever he spoke, you know, crowds would gather. And somebody came up to him and he said, you know what? You need to be careful. And he says, well, why do I need to be careful? He says, because you are a very, very gifted preacher. And here's the danger. You could probably go 10, 15 years just using your gift of preaching and never relying on the Holy Spirit, never relying on God, and nobody would be the wiser. And you're so good that you could do this for a long period of time 
and do it for all the wrong reasons and nobody would know and you probably have a good run in ministry while the whole time your heart is not fully in it or is not fully dependent upon God. And so that was his shadow mission. He was so gifted that the temptation was that he could carry on ministry just fine without depending upon the power of God in his life. And so in this, this speaker talks about the danger of a shadow mission, that sometimes we do things, and we may do them well, but if you dig down, there may be other things driving us in doing these things. So for there's a well-known story of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, when he was, I think he was still in his 20s, became a president of a university. Can you imagine in your 20s becoming a president? And truth be told, he wasn't a very good president. And afterwards, he said it was the biggest mistake becoming, saying yes to being a president. Because one, it took him off his true mission, which was to be an evangelist. And secondly, he says, honestly, one of the reasons that drew him to saying yes to becoming a president of the university was the simple fact that his name would be hanging on the wall saying president. And so it's, it's interesting. So um, there are shadow missions. In, and I would uh, ask you to look in your own life and say, what, what are some of the things that are driving you to do what you do that maybe are not, if you dive down deep, maybe are being motivated by reasons that are less godly than you think. I'll tell you, you know what the shadow mission is for most pastors? Sorry, we can just pull up, just grab some chairs if you want. Yeah, sorry, I didn't put out enough chairs. Um, you know what the shadow mission is for most pastors? Is they can do a lot of things and it looks good, all for the seemingly the right reasons, but a lot of pastors do what they do because they really want to be liked. That pastors deep, deep down are, very, are notorious people pleasers. And the danger with that is that they can be all things to all people, which on one hand is okay. On the other hand, they can become chameleon to the point where they no longer know who they are. And a lot of pastors hit the rails because if after about 10 years, they, they kind of, they can coast for about 10 years. And then, but it eventually catch up to them and they look in the mirror and they don't know who they are. And so everybody, I think everybody has a shadow mission, something that, that drives us that if you dig deep may not be that great. And I also think, and this is dangerous, but I think it's true, I think churches have shadow missions. And I think you have a mission statement and then you have a shadow mission statement. Um, probably shouldn't go much further than that. <laughs> well, I'll give you a shadow mission for a lot of churches. Do you know what the shadow mission is for a lot of churches? I can't help myself. <laughs> I can't help myself. Actually, let me ask you, what do you think the shadow mission is um, for, for the evangelical church? Yeah, yeah, we're driven for numbers. Yes. 
how many people, how success, or success, you can even back up and say success. So I've often come up, I've come up with a slogan for the evangelical church. So <laughs> have you ever watched Stranger Things? Right? You get the upper world and then you get the underworld, right? So the upper world is, in ours, is like helping seekers and believers become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's good. Right? That's our church. But you know what the shadow mission of an evangelical church is? Busy churches for busy people. Because nobody can be busy like an evangelical church. Which on one hand, they get a lot of things done. On the other hand, you get a lot of people that are just really, really tired and frenetic. Anyhow, we'll probably just edit that part out later on. No. <laughs> but the reason why I bring this up is I think Solomon had a shadow mission. And as we look at um, Solomon's life, uh, I want you to think about what is sh uh, Solomon's shadow mission and how is Solomon's life a warning for our own Christian life? I think there are some, some connecting points. The truth of the matter is that Solomon was one on whom God's favor and God's love was placed, absolutely. Uh, and throughout Solomon's life, we get glimpses of Solomon at his best, right? We do. Um, Solomon is a special king. And the structure of the book of Kings is actually laid out to... To, to, to show how Solomon's kingship plays out. And the structure of the book actually, it, by the time you get to the end of Solomon's reign, it sets things up for the remaining parts of First and Second Kings. And uh, the themes that show up in Solomon's life will shape the trajectory of the rest of the book of Kings. And one of the issues that's going to show up is an issue. And I love this. When I preach on Sundays on the Ten Commandments and I teach on First and Second Kings, I realize just how connected these are. I mean, one of the issues is the issue of having other gods before you and making graven images, idolatry. That's going to show up. And so the Book of Kings will be organized as we uh, carry on, especially next week, around this repet uh, repetitive formula. This king did right in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then we learn that the king dies and where he was buried. And I always like to say, and for more information about this king, please consult the book of whatever happens to be, right? Now, in uh, Judah, in the south, and we're going to talk about this, a lot, we'll come across some good kings. And a lot of these good kings are good kings except for one thing. They leave the high places intact. This is where Hezekiah, when we look at Hezekiah towards the end of First and Second Kings, uh, Hezekiah is an exception to this rule, right? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, tonight we're fast-forwarding over First Kings chapter 6 through 8, and that is the building of Solomon's house and all the furniture and how he's decorating it and the building of the temple and the dedication of the temple. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I read... Maybe it's just me, but when I read all the description of how the temple is being made and what's where, and it's just me, but I'm one of those visually impaired people when it comes to imagining what is being constructed. I'm one of those guys that reads a novel, and I think the people who are on this journey are on this side of a mountain, 
but they're actually on the other side. I, I just get always mixed up with descriptive language in a novel. Does anybody else do that, or is it just me? Yeah. And so I read Lord of the Rings, and it's like, and they come up, and, the, and in my mind, they're facing east. But then they say, oh, and then they see the sunset. I was like, what? No, they're facing the wrong way. So I get all confused. So I'm, I'm reading First Kings and all the descriptions of the temple, and I'm trying to track, but I really, I have no idea. Um, you can Google images and get an idea what it looks like. But one guy puts it this way. One, um, Ian Proven points out, he says, even people who are visually not challenged are able to kind of hear these things and put together what the temple would look like. Even they struggle because it looks like, despite the details, most of what is being described in the description of the building of the temple is more symbolic than actually this is how the layout of the floor looked like. That's from my understanding. So we carry on. We do get to 1 Kings chapter 8. And, uh, and, and, and when we get to, before we look at the final stages of Solomon's career, in chapter 8, let's pause here for a moment, because uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 is a pretty important chapter. There's some, uh, it's where the ark is brought to the temple and where Solomon has his great prayer. Um, it's a theologically rich section. There's a lot of pomp and ceremony and rituals building dedications, ribbon cuttings, well, maybe no ribbon cuttings, but, um, but, it's, but what often happens, what shows up in chapter 8, is just a repetition of things that you come across all throughout the Old Testament, and that is the conditions of the covenant that God has made with Israel. If you obey my commands, if you walk with me, if your heart is with me, then, you know, There'll be great blessings. If you turn from me, if you turn to other gods, then there's going to be consequences. And so this is uh, brought out uh, again, the covenantal promises and warnings and encouragements. But this chapter, chapter 8, marks a bit of a conclusion to the promises God gave to Abraham, Moses, and David. But there's a shadow to it. Because there is a stark warning of the disintegration of the kingdom if promises are broken. And so with Solomon, um, in this chapter, he talked, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is brought from the Tent of Meeting to the Temple. Solomon speaks of the Lord's greatness and kindness. Solomon prays and makes seven petitions to the Lord on behalf of the people. Solomon exhorts the people to receive God's blessing by staying loyal to the covenant. So the, one of the ironies is that Solomon's like, and everyone, if we stay loyal to the covenant, it will go well for us and the kingdom. So Solomon may, may have been one of those, take my advice, I will never use it kind of guys. Um, that leads us to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is an interesting chapter. Something begins to happen. And at the beginning of chapter 9, um, we find Solomon, and chapter 9 focuses on the remaining years of the kingdom of Solomon. And in First and Second Kings, we're, we're presented with a guy who, you know, doesn't start off that great. We looked at first and uh, chapters 1 and 2. Kind of gets on the right path. Ask God for a listening heart. And things actually go fairly well. In chapters 3 through 5, things are actually quite good. 
There are some signs, there are some troubling signs. This marriage alliance, where did these horses come from? Those sorts of questions. Once we get to chapters 9 through 11, those little problems that lingered, that we saw little hints of early on, these little problems get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we find out that Solomon will succumb to the shadow mission of apostasy. He'll, he'll turn away from God. And uh, the reality is, uh, this reality shows up especially in chapter 11. Now typically when the story of Solomon is told, everything's going well until chapter 11. In chapter 11 we read, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Ah, that's where everything went wrong. But I don't think so. We've seen hints of it along the way, and I think we see hints of it certainly in chapter 9. Chapter 11, where everything goes south for Solomon, does not take place out of the blue. As Chandler Bing would put it, it's right smack dab in the blue. Oh, that's a friend's, friend's reference, sorry. <laughs> but it's, it, the fall of uh, Solomon is not that sudden. There are signs ahead of time, which again is a reminder that people who, you know, pastors or you know, prominent people or any anyone who just when when we fall, we have a moral failure. It's not like, huh, never saw it coming. If you look closely, there are signs. It's always signs. Yeah. I remember, um, remember before um, Ravi Zacharias had that moral failure. Some of you may know who he is. Uh, I used to read his books, and he was a big influence on my Christian life. Um, I met him once when I was younger. And, um, but for, the, for years, people would say to me, who kind of knew him or I connected to him, would raise question marks. And there were some question marks, just little question marks. And, um, and these question marks kept showing up, kept showing up. And uh, a lot of people just ignore them. Ah, it's just no, not a big deal, not a big deal. But it turns out there was a big deal. And these things kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, then it all came out afterwards. But again, it's a reality. A lot of people are like, I never saw it coming. But if you actually look carefully, there were signs earlier on. In, in, in various areas. I don't want to go into detail, but there were, they were there. So same with Solomon, things just don't suddenly just happen at the end of his reign. So let's look at what takes place. So let's linger in chapter 9. We know that back in chapter 3, Solomon, or God appears to Solomon, right? Remember that? You with me? Here we have a second appearance. Now this is where we need to pay attention to how the narrator's telling the story. And what it seems to be happening here is, that, is we have kind of a parallel taking place between what we see in chapter 3 and in chapter 9. And this is very important for Hebrew poetry, Hebrew writing, is that in Hebrew writing, to make an emphasis, you repeat, right? In order to make something stand out, you repeat, but you have, you, you have a twist. You have some changes. And it's where those differences lie. That's the point that the narrator's trying to get across. And so in this case, in chapter 3, you have God appearing to Solomon. Chapter 9, God appears to Solomon. 
okay? And then we're going to see the events that take place. We're going to see how they parallel, but they're different, right? Um, so, what happens here? Well, back in chapter 3, we saw Solomon's rise to greatness. He's given wisdom to discern and wisdom to rule. He's given by the Lord everything he needs to achieve everything that he's desired to do. And he takes on a lot of building projects, right? And he completes them. The second appearance to, of God to Solomon marks the end of the good times and the beginnings of a slide into apostasy. Look what it says. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father. Okay, but... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb. It was interesting. It was Solomon, the author of Proverbs, right? Israel become a proverb and a byword among the people okay so God says to Solomon the future of your dynasty is dependent upon obedience and obedience of, 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 of future generations and they said you need to be like David if you walk like David now again we have to remember David King David was not perfect at all but in the Bible the blessing is upon David why why is David... Um, he could repent. He could repent. Very good, yeah. What he else? Yeah. What else? It's basically the trajectory of his heart. His heart was to please God. He was just... I mean, he's messed up in so many ways, so he was broken like all of us. But he was a man after God's own heart. His desire was to move in the way that honors God. Did he always do that? No. But in the Bible, you, the trajectory of your heart matters a lot. And so, it's a question of, uh, to ask ourselves, what is the trajectory of our hearts? So, the, the key question is on verse 6. Which God are you going to worship? Are you going to worship Yahweh? Are you going to worship these other, other gods? If you turn away from God, you will become a byword. And the word byword is an interesting word. It means a proverb, but a negative proverb. And so it says, if you turn away from me, you will be known as a nation uh, that, that messed up. You will be subject to ridicule. And so this question, this section harkens back to the requirements of the covenant. And the theme of wisdom is, is at center here. Live wisely and you'll be okay. If you live, behave unwisely, you will become ridiculous 
to the surrounding nations. Okay? And so there's an association of wisdom with ruling and foolishness to the subjection of your enemies. So, things... Trouble is brewing, though, with Solomon. Trouble is brewing. Um, and, and you can see this. It doesn't mean that Solomon couldn't make it. Solomon had choice. He could have done everything right. But you're getting a sense in chapter 9 that things are starting to not look very good. And so we have, by the time we get to verse 10, you have this glory of Solomon, but it's under a cloud. Um, what takes place next? Okay? The end of 20 years in which Solomon had built two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. Hiram, king of Tyre, supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and timber and gold. King Solomon gave to Hiram... To, now, remember Hiram? So again, this, this section kind of parallels chapters 3 through 5. Who's Hiram? We came across him before. Do you remember? Yeah? Yeah? And what did he do? Yeah, he supplied all this stuff uh, to build the, uh, the temple, right? And if you read chapter 5, I believe it's chapter 5, you have Hiram, and Hiram is pretty subservient to Solomon. Solomon's calling the shots. Solomon's, you can see, in a position of power. He's in a position of elevation, and Hiram's trying to negotiate but not getting very far. Here you get Solomon says, I didn't give you these, uh, these cities, and Hiram comes back, he says, you gave me all these cities in, like, northern Manitoba. Like, why? Sorry. <laughs> you gave me these lousy, lousy cities. No, I said Manitoba was fine. Um, why did you give me these lousy cities? And so he kind of pushes back against Solomon. So all of a sudden, it's like, huh, this seamless kind of relationship between Solomon and Hiram, things are not as smooth as they were before. And Hiram, who used to be, yes, yes, boss, yes, whatever you say, and just kind of subservient, is now saying, why do you give me these lousy cities? So there's something going wrong. And, uh, and so th this is just a, an early, early warning sign. And then we find something else. And this is going to come back. Look at verse 14. What does Hiram send to Solomon? What does he send? Gold. Yeah, how much? 120 talents. Do you know how much that is? I don't really know either. Um, I think it's a lot. It's a lot. 75 pounds, which in today's age... <laughs> it would be a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but this is an interesting. Now, you've got to pay attention to this. This is going to be really interesting. In the original agreement between Hiram and Solomon, there's no mention of gold. But here, you have a payment of some sort. And this payment is given... But then Hiram's also complaining about these towns that he's been given. But it's the first time in the story of Solomon, I believe, that we read about gold passing hands. Where did they get the gold? Well, they probably mine the gold, right? Um, in, in, in Africa, I know there's gold in Africa. And in the surrounding areas, I think there's a lot of gold. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys a fun project. 
okay? Are you guys ready? You guys gonna be part of this project too, you ready? But I can't break you into groups because apparently you guys don't like Zoom breakout groups. Um, here's your, here's, your, uh, here's your, your job, okay? What I want you to do, and you can do this around your table, I'm gonna give you maybe three minutes to do this. I want you to look at chapter nine, verse 10, the one we just looked at, all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. Now you can skim through this, but I want you to mark down how many times in this section, chapter nine, verse 10 to chapter 10, verse 25, make a note and come back to me how many times you come across the word gold. Okay, so go, you just take a few moments to do that. You can talk to each other around the table, you can divvy things up or whatever you like. Okay, so how many times do we come across gold in that, in the, in that section? 18? 17? 16? How many did you get? 16? There's probably anywhere between 16 and 18 times it's mentioned. <laughs> I think I have it written down. And well, I just realized it could be part of your translations too. Um, so, but let's say between 16 and 18 times it's, it's mentioned. Now, that is a lot of mentions of gold. And again, from a, from a narrative perspective, Repetition, remember, is really important. These are extraordinary amounts of gold. And if you notice, if you look at it carefully, you'll notice that the gold that's coming is becoming more and more exotic in, where, in the places where it's coming from. And the gold keeps increasing. And again, as you make your way through chapter 10, the collections of gold are taken from more and more fabulous places and used in more and more fabulous ways. Now, some people, some commentators, look at that and say, see, that is a fulfillment of God's promise to make Solomon's kingdom glorious. Okay? But is it? See, back in chapter 3, you do see a blessing upon Solomon. But the riches we see are of a different kind. Back in chapter 4 and chapter 5, how is prosperity communicated? Prosperity is the people had enough to eat. Everybody, what, what does it say? Everybody would be under their own vineyard. Everybody, like, everybody was happy. The people were happy. There was food for the kingdom. And, and Solomon's prayer is that he would govern well, that he would have a listening heart, and he'd be able to provide for all the people. And here's the thing. In a community, food is really useful. Compare that to gold that is stored away. So why does this theme of gold... And again, notice where it shows up. It shows up right after God issues the warning. Now somebody, if you have your Bible, um, you guys can do it online too. Just yell it out because I have the volume up. If you come across Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, read it out. Whoever finds it first. I know people find it, but then they'll just wait. But if you find it, just, just read it out. 
Proverbs 30, verse 8. <clears throat> Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Very good. Say it again. See if we can all hear you. <laughs> Say it really loudly. We can hear. I have the volume up really loud. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Very good. Neither poverty nor riches feed me with food. Now, who wrote that? Solomon. It's attributed to Solomon, right? Now, we also read a warning back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which we're going to come back to again and again. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here's the warnings about kings. Only, this is what a king must not do. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And what do we find Solomon doing here? That's why I say as early as chapter 9, we're starting to say, hang on. I don't think this is an accident. Excessive wealth, excessive wealth brings with it the danger of apostasy. Why? Well, begin, you begin to trust on your wealth and your glory rather than on God. Very good. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, he it kind of became about himself. Yeah, he went from doing God's will to glorifying himself. Yeah, but, but even again early on, like, you know, how much time did he spend on his house? And like, there's little signs along the way, but yeah, there seems to be a shift that's taking place. I was thinking about this this week when I was um, preparing this. Now, I probably shouldn't pick on it, but why not? Um, I used to do schooling down in Boston and Charlotte. Boston, Massachusetts, Charlotte, North Carolina. And when I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, I was with a couple of my classmates, and we were there on over the weekend, and we thought, let's go to this church, because we had heard about this church. And it's um, Elevate Church. Have you guys ever heard of that one? It's a guy named Steve Furtick, and he's, he's, he's quite, quite famous. And the church is, you know, there's, it's a mega church, and there's lots of them, and, and one of the biggest ones, one of the, one of the big ones was in Charlotte. And so we wanted to go just get the whole experience. And uh, I remember when we pulled in, it was in a shopping mall and it took up most of the shopping mall. And we pulled in and there's a big sign say, you know, put on your four ways on your car if you're a guest. And then they direct you to this guest, you know, privileged parking, right? You get really close to the building. And, and we, as soon as we get out, then they, hey, welcome. And they brought us over to the visitor's tent and we got a free t-shirt. And we went over to this other tent and they, they give us some, I think, some CDs or something like that. And then we got brought into the building and we got seated and, 
and uh, people were talking to us and and it there was just so much money into it there was a lot of money there was like sterling silver offering plates that we passed back and forth and it was just like and i just was looking at it and there was a lot of money in this whole and this was just one of the campuses and uh, i was looking at it and and it was interesting because other than the professional greeters, nobody said a word to us. Nobody talked to us. There's no, there was very little community. And um, I remember being in there and just feeling really uncomfortable. Uh, just thinking, you know, at what point, at what point do things shift and it becomes about, you know, the church. You know, in our church, we can run into that same difficulty. When, when does it become about the church rather than about God, right? Well, here you have Solomon, and he, there's a shift that begins to take place. And, and, we're, and we learn this, from again, from Hebrew narrative. Um, I don't think these references to gold are meant to be a positive commentary at all. I think they're meant to be um, very, very critical. Um, Solomon, especially in light of what we're going to see in the next couple uh, chapters. And I think they reflect a little bit of Solomon's soul here. Um, and then there's something else that goes on. And I think this is what the, uh, the narrator is getting at. Early on, when Solomon used his wisdom, and he did some trading, and he did all sorts of things, the, the purpose of it, was to benefit the people. By the time you get to chapter 10, things have shifted. The only conversation is not so much about Israel, but about Solomon, his men, and his royal court. It's not about Israel and Judah being happy and content. And so what's going on here? It looks like, yes, God is keeping his promises and making Solomon rich, but is Solomon using his riches wisely? It doesn't seem so. I mean, what does Solomon use? You guys skimmed through it. Did you notice? What does Solomon use his gold to build? Shields, yeah. He overlays a lot of his shields with gold. Now, I'm not a military expert, but I'm pretty sure that in war, a gold shield is not very useful, okay? It's not very useful at all. Um, what else does he build? He overlays the ivory that's there. Yeah, what else? Wood, yeah. A uh, golden throne, yes. A a large golden throne with arms and everything. And now just think about this. And you think about David. Is that something you think you could see David doing? This gold throne, throne made out of gold? I don't know. So this is, this is a, you know, our spider sense should get tingling on this one. Now, there's one other, there's a, well, two other stories that, that kind of help paint this picture. There's a theme of forced labor. Now, we can't go into this in detail, but back in chapter 5, 
with Hiram, they're building the temple and, and we read about forced labor, right? And it's kind of forced labor, but you know, some pretty good union arrangements because there's one month off, two months off. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible. By the time we get to chapter 10, we, we get an idea of where the, or um, at the, towards the end of chapter 9, I believe towards the end of chapter 9, we get an idea of where this labor came from. And the point they're making is that this labor was not Israel. They're not Israelites. They were made up of which people? Does anybody know? There we go. Uh, verse 20 in chapter 9. All the people were left on the, uh, of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites were not the people of Israel. Their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves. And they are so to this day. But the people of Israel, Solomon, made no slaves. They were soldiers, his officials, and those sorts of things. Okay. So this is just kind of a short observation. But the, the, the list of the people that made up the forced labor are the very people that we read about in Deuteronomy that could turn Solomon's heart away. Or not Solomon, turn Israel's heart away from God. And so the commandment is to Joshua, you know, to, to, you know to, to clear the land. And specifically, those people are mentioned as potential to draw Israel's heart away from God. So we find them listed again. And they're also listed in conjunction with Solomon's wife, Pharaoh's daughter, and her house that has been built. And so this forced labor... Of, made up of the exact names of people, of, of, of the people group um, who in Deuteronomy where we were warned about may draw people's hearts, the leaders of Israel's hearts away from God. You have Pharaoh's daughter, a foreigner, an, Egy an Egyptian, and there's a warning about Egypt, will it draw your hearts away? And so this whole section about forced labor seems to suggest, it might be tenuous, it might be a foreshadowing of the fact that Solomon is going to be seduced by other gods. Well, and there's certainly, yeah, certainly our hearts are, 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 uh, are bent towards things that don't always honor God. Absolutely. Um, well, absolutely, yeah. And ho hopefully that's what we're doing tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, then we have this amazing story. And it's quite a well-known story. And often this story is told in a positive way. So I'm kind of trying to debunk everything. Um, but um, the story is the Queen of Sheba. Isn't there a song by Coldplay called Queen of Sheba? I don't know. Um, okay, so we read. Take a look in chapter 10. This is the story of the Queen of Sheba. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the famous Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, and, hey, here's a shocker, much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him that she... that. Um, 
all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, the cupbearers, the burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no breath in her. She's like, oh, Solomon. Um, and she says to the king, well, the report is true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half, of, half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, <laughs> a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as those of the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Okay, well, very good. And there's lots more gold that comes. So often this is told, this story is told, well, this is Solomon at his finest. I mean, look how wise he is, right? Gets not just gold, but a queen from Arabia arrives to test Solomon with hard questions. And so, again, there's, there's a parallel here, right? Because in chapter 4, we read about Solomon's wisdom and people from all over the place coming and learning about Solomon's wisdom. So there's, a, there's an intentional parallel, I think, happening here. But it's a parallel with a twist. Solomon answers all of her questions and leaves her literally out of breath. She's like, oh, Solomon. Oh, that's just so wise. And it just confirms the wisdom of Solomon. It's a very familiar text. But I want you to think about this. How is she, like the Queen of Sheba, what is her response when, she, when Solomon, you know, displays all this wisdom what does she say she says how happy who who is must be how happy your officials and servants and men who wait upon you must be to be surrounded by your wisdom she's basically saying how how glorious and how how, how wonderful is your royal court and the emphasis is on the royal court, not on the people of Judah and Israel as a whole. And the other thing is, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into this, but what, like, what kind of questions are, is he answering? The actual Hebrew is like the questions she's asking him are not just questions of life, they're riddles. He's basically having to solve an ancient form of wordle with her. Um, you know, he's trying to help her, you know, with ancient Sudoku or something. He, she's just hitting him with riddles and seeing whether or not he can answer these riddles. Now, that's a different kind of wisdom. That's just, look how smart I am. Not in terms of wisdom necessarily to manage and lead a nation. He's just answering a lot of her questions. 
And then you get this description of an influx of luxury goods. Look at verse 22. We got to the end of it. It says, uh, For the king had a fleet of ships from Tarshish at sea and the fleet of Hiram. Uh, once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing, oh, shocker, gold, silver, ivory, and I don't know what your translation says. Mine says apes and peacocks, but peacocks could also be baboons. I don't know. What, what does yours say? Yes, baboons? Yeah. Yeah, it says baboons, right? Um, so let me just ask you, what does the import of apes and baboons and peacocks have to do with the benefit of the people of Israel? See, at this stage in Solomon's life, in his leadership journey, he's basically becoming like every other king in the region. He's, he's basically not that much different than Nebuchadnezzar. To every other ancient king, he's, he's, he's the, he has the makings of an ancient narcissistic king who brings in gold, piles it up, builds things he doesn't really need, brings in wild animals, exotic animals from the far away place. And if you read the text, where the gold comes in, all these things comes from farther, uh, farther and farther away. Like just more from the ends of the earth, all these things are coming to him. And the one thing that you don't hear is about how the people in the nation are doing. Wow. The most serious thing is there's only one being we should worship. That's God. Solomon is transferring worship and expecting people to worship him. And he's building that kingdom. In a way, yeah, it seems to be. And, and you know, this is the danger. Well, that's, I, I think we all can. And it's the danger of leadership, whether you're in a church or you're in a company or in a nation. And, and often what happens is you have a person who's in a position of leadership who has forgotten where they came from. They've forgotten their roots. And they get kind of filled. They start believing their own press. And, and this is what happens to Solomon. But I'll tell you, and as you're saying, Maxine, um, this happened, this this can happen very easily if we're not careful. And it can happen especially, you know, with the advent of social media because, you know, you, you, you begin to see yourself by how many people interact with you online, how many likes, how many followers. I had a guy come up to me and said, hey, you know, just so you know, I do this sort of thing and this sort of thing. And just so you know, I, got, I have about, you know, this many thousand followers. So this is a pretty big deal. And um, it, it's... It's very easy to fall into this. And Solomon, you know, he's, he's no longer the leader of Psalm 72. He's become like any other ancient king. Now, here's the thing. It's not like there's no warnings about this. Go back. This will be fun. Go back to uh, 1 Samuel. Flip back just two books to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is Samuel. Samuel knows 
He knows. He, he warns. Yeah, first Sam. Oh, I'm on second Samuel. First Samuel chapter eight. Verse when I find it. Uh, verse ten. Yep. So Samuel told all these words of the Lord to the people who were asking a king for him. And he says, okay, now listen to the verb. Listen to the verb. What verb shows up over and over again. You'll probably guess it by the way I say it. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make the implements of the war and equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers, to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What's the word that shows up again and again? Take. He takes. Everything becomes his. And this is the atmosphere of 1 Kings chapter 9 verse 10, and in chapter 10. And Samuel, he saw this coming. He saw this coming. And he knew that this was a danger. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, we have the warnings, right? We have the warnings. The king, he ought to be an Israelite. Someone who does not accumulate gold. Keeps the Torah by his bedside, basically. And again, we come across gold mentioned so many times. And then we also come across an answer to a mystery. And it's not a shock. Look at chapter 10, verse 28. You know those horses that just happened to show up? We, we found them. We raised them, did we? And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. <laughs> and the king's traders received from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Okay. So, the horses came from Egypt. So, by the end of chapter 10, Solomon has just violated two of the three instructions. Don't accumulate too much gold and silver. Don't get a lot of horses. The only good thing is that Solomon at least remains true to his wife. <laughs> Until chapter 11. Um, verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Hey, uh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, again, these nations show up again, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Again, the reason why there's no intermarriage is not a racial thing, it's a religious thing. It's they are going to turn your hearts away from God. And you have to realize, this isn't like Solomon's just like, you know, I just really can't help myself with, with 
the ladies. It's, it's more, these are all like, help him politically, right? He's, he, they're all strategic marriages too, for, for political purposes. And basically, he's, Solomon is becoming just like every other king around. Because how he's behaving, lots of horses, lots of gold, lots of wives, got this huge harem. How many? Well, in here it says a thousand, but I think that might just be a way of saying lots. Lots, you know, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Um, Solomon at this point has become just like every other king. So here's a question I want you guys to ask. Maybe we can discuss it around the table. I think it'd be kind of fun. Um, to what degree is our witness to Jesus impaired by a desire to fit in with the surrounding world, to look just like everyone else? Okay. How is our witness to Jesus impaired by this desire to fit in with the surrounding world? How does that express itself? Can you guys talk about that? Okay, just take a few moments to talk about yourself. You guys on, on the chat can put it up on the chat. Okay, let's, uh, let's gather in. So we can talk about this quite a bit. Um, so how, how is our witness, how have you seen it expressed where our witness could be compromised or impaired um, out of a desire to fit in with the surrounding world? Where, where have you seen this kind of played out? Or how have you seen it played out? Yeah, Al. If you don't do things that are bad, people think there's something wrong with you. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. What do you think? You're better than anyone? Yeah, and so, and so sometimes you, you, you'll do some of those little things just to kind of fit in because everybody's doing that and you don't want to necessarily stand out, right? I'm not saying you, but a, a person might be tempted to do that, right? Good. What else? On here we had uh, some good ones. Holding back on discussing on heaven and hell, um, you know, Caring about your, your friendship and the relationship rather than speaking the truth into the person's life. Not offending anyone. Performance and work. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah, what else? Anything else? The peer pressure? Yeah, the peer pressure just to kind of go with the flow is, is quite strong, especially with the advent of social media. One of the ways I see it is I see a lot of, um, how does my daughter call them? She calls them uh, pick-me Christians. <laughs> so basically it's like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like, I'm not like those other Christians. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cool Christian or I'm a, I'm a happening, <laughs> you know. Like I'm not like those other Christians. I'm a Christian, but of a different kind, right? And so... It's a way of saying, you know, I want to fit in by saying, well, I'm not, don't associate me with that. I'm, I'm different kind of thing. Um, and our desire, in our desire to fit in, sometimes we'll leave some things behind that are kind of unpalatable to our culture. 
in order to show, hey, I'm not like those kind of Christians. I'm kind of a cool Christian. But what you leave behind might be something fundamental to the faith, right? And again, I, I don't think a genuine following of Jesus Christ has ever really, really been super popular in the history of the world. Um, it, it, as you were saying, Al, it just kind of could rub people the wrong way, right? Um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Right. It's the Holy Spirit. It's it's by your deeds and being open that you're a Christian, that you're just out being a servant. Yeah. That it's people opening their hearts and it's the Holy Spirit. And each person will be different ways that the Holy Spirit touches their heart. But yeah. how Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, there's, 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 there's lots of factors at play. I think even in our world today to talk about the Holy Spirit who guides us and directs us and opens up our eyes and will open up your heart might make people feel like, whoa, that's a little strange. Um, because people don't necessarily, well, maybe some people will be open to that, but maybe it's something that some people would be tempted to downplay in order to fit in and maybe present Jesus as more of a, of a lifestyle or a, a philosophy among many rather than the way, the truth, and the life, those sorts of things. So I think that um, with, with Solomon, in his desire maybe to, be, to look like every other king, he, he breaks all the things that um, Israel was warned about. And we read he has all these women, all these wives, and it, it says in the passage, his heart holds fast to them. He cleaves to them. He's, he's firmly attached and deeply associates himself with these women. And these, these, this relationship with all his wives and concubines completely disrupts his life with God. And uh, the language is quite strong. And so... Again, who is a royal king supposed to love? The Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Solomon's heart is divided and the division gets worse and worse and worse. The ambiguity that he had within becomes, causes ambiguity without. And so the issue you have to realize, and I think I mentioned this last week, the issue when you read the Old Testament for Israel, the issue is never do I worship Yahweh or do I worship Baal? That is not the issue in the Old Testament. It's not Yahweh or Baal, Yahweh or Kamosh, Yahweh or Marek, Yahweh or Ashtarot, whatever it happens to be. It's always this. Do I worship Yahweh alone or do I, work, do I worship Yahweh, Baal, Molech, Kamosh, and a few others? Is, is God 
lumped in with the other gods? Or is God God alone? That's the issue. And what you have with Solomon is like, yeah, I believe in Yahweh, of course. But you know, one of my wives really likes Moloch. And who am I to say about the whole issue with child sacrifice to this god, Moloch, but she really likes him. So I'm going to build a temple to, I'm going to build a temple to Moloch, even though the practice of worshiping Moloch involves child sacrifice, which I'm not supposed to do, but she really likes Moloch. And we don't know, but we do know that that was, that that was a connection with, with Moloch. And so what happens is Solomon's heart gets split into a hundred different directions. All of this affects him religiously. Look at verse 4. For Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place. Remember, these high places are supposed to be still practicing with, with you know, worship of Yahweh. But now these high places that are being built are now associated with pagan gods. He builds a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And so what is the consequence to all this? Well, what happens next should not come as a surprise. God is angry in response, and we discover that the kingdom is going to be torn apart. The kingdom is going to be torn asunder. Um, but, and this is, we're going to keep coming back to this, but God is saying, even though you have in the, because of David, even though the kingdom's going to be torn into two, and from basically the next chapter onwards, the kingdom is divided into two, where you've got Israel, which makes up you know, the ten tribes in the north, and Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin? Is it Benjamin? Or Dan? And the other one. Uh, down in the south, but it'll just be known as Judah from, from that point onwards. So the, the kingdom is going to be divided into two. And um, in the south, you're going to have some bad kings, but, but for some reason they're able to, to keep on going because of, because of David's loyalty to God. In the north, you're going to come across a lot of bad kings, and every one of them, to varying degrees, is really, really bad. And so this, um, this lays the foundation for the division uh, of the kingdom. It's gonna, um, so right away, the moment, Saul, the moment we get to this point, um, we read in the text in, in, in chapter 11 that God raises up adversaries. And you think about it, because Solomon's heart is divided, the kingdom becomes divided. The people become divided, which is, a, which is an important warning. If you're a leader, if you're a father or a mother or a leader in any sort of realm of influence, that how your heart is with God will affect those that you influence. 
And if your heart is divided, if you're all over the place, chances are the people that you oversee, there'll be division among them as well. You know, as a leader goes, so do the people. And uh, we can't underestimate the importance of leadership. Well, and we know, like if there is a lack of leadership, if you have a leader that just looks at whichever the way the wind goes, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to go well for the people. Benjamin, thanks. Um, I realize sometimes when, I, uh, when I'm talking to younger people and I'll say, you know, some people, you know, how do they lead? They just go like this. And I realize a lot of people have no idea what that means. Do you guys know what that means? Like, why do you do that? Yeah, because whichever way it's cold, that's the way the wind is going. But for a lot of people, they're like, what? why are you licking your finger and putting your hand up? But it's just which, which way is the wind going, right? And so that sets things up. And now I'm, I'm just thinking about what I think I'll do is I'm going to hang on on the story of uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Because um, that's where the kingdom begins to split. I probably will talk about them as a unit next week. But what I'd like to do to conclude our time, so I have some stuff in your notes about Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam, which we'll pick up uh, next week. But what I'd like to do is just kind of give some, some closing thoughts about our man Solomon, his legacy. What can we learn from his life? All right? What can we learn from Solomon? Well, the story of Solomon shows how wisdom and God's law need to go together and what happens when they fall apart. And the story of Solomon shows what a divided heart, how a divided heart leads to a divided life. What a lesson for our Christian lives. A divided heart will lead to a divided life. In many ways, Solomon was a wise king. He was. He was very wise. Um, and his wisdom later on is not used for, for good purposes. But by the end of his life, he's known more for his clever word plays and answering riddles than actually caring for his people. And we also know, even from the get-go, there were question marks about his integrity. There were signs of a wayward heart. But this waywardness grows and increases to the point where at the end of his life, he doesn't finish well. He falls into apostasy, he falls away from God. And in some ways, Solomon was an ideal king. He prays for wisdom, asks for a listening heart. And he's one of those guys, I think about Solomon this week, I thought, he's like one of those sports stars that in their rookie year, they do so well, and even their second year, they do well, and you think, this guy is going to be the next Michael Jordan. And then they just, they tank because of issues in their life and that they don't deal with. And all this promise, all this potential just kind of disappears, goes out the window. He was a king truly blessed by God. He realized that he was blessed. But things began to go south. But one of the things that shows up in the life of Solomon, we need to get this, is the thing that saves Solomon is his dad basically, is the fact that he's related to David. And, um, and we re when we read the story of the Old Testament, we realize again and again, and you'll, 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 
you'll notice how many times they'll say, but for the sake of your father David, but for the sake of the house of David, I will not destroy you. But because of David, even though you're a horrible king, I will not cut you off. And it points to the fact that God's promise to David, this covenant with David, is still going to factor in in the long run. And so we shouldn't be surprised by the time we get to the New Testament that Jesus is identified as the son of David, towards whom the Davidic promise is ultimately directed. Jesus will be the king who sits upon David's throne. He is the one greater than Solomon, who we read about. He is, he is wisdom that people like the Queen of Sheba need to listen to. And so Jesus supersedes Solomon in wisdom and faithful obedience to the law. And it's interesting, do you remember, where does um, Jesus, when does Jesus talk, make mention of Solomon? Yeah. What did it say? Yeah, not even Solomon. Consider the lilies of the field. Right? Not even Solomon in all of his splendor can compare to this, right? Now, it's interesting. So that's a reference to Solomon and his splendor. What is the context? Do you remember what is the context of Jesus' teaching here? Do not worry. What else? Provision. Provision. And, don't, and in one of the uh, Gospels, it's followed up with the parable of the rich fool. So it's talking about don't try to accumulate. Don't store up treasures in heaven. Or don't store up treasures on earth because you have treasures in heaven, right? Where, where, the, where the moth will come in and rust will destroy. Trust in God for all your provision. Do not put your trust in money. Right? Do not put your trust in mammon. That's the context of the teaching. And it's interesting that Solomon gets mentioned in the context of teaching about not desiring too much money, not desiring to, to build up your wealth, not looking for riches on earth. I think there's a direct connection to that. So I think Solomon functions as a warning to Christians. He's not a model, but he's a warning. And uh, Jesus teaches his followers to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and Solomon, we, he had the serpent part down, but I'm not so sure about the harmless as doves. And true wisdom, we read in the New Testament, comes from above. And people who are wise unto themselves, people who are wise unto themselves are seen in a negative light. And it also points to the temple where Jesus says, you know, the church, that we are Christ's own body. So what, I, what we're going to do, what we're going to do is um, we're going to pause here and looking at the life of Solomon. I think in these past three weeks as, as we've been exploring the life of Solomon, it has spoken to me in big ways because I think, just as an aside, I think the life of Solomon could be taught as a life of warning to any pastor and leadership. Like, this, this, is, this is my world, right, as, as a pastor. I'm reading Solomon, and I'm like, wow. 
Now, I think it applies to anyone, to all of our Christian lives, and to anyone in positions of leadership or of influence, which, which we all have. But I'll tell you, there, there's some warnings in Solomon's life. Um, a guy who started off well, he was gifted, he had everything, and it does not end well. And again, we've talked about this, but the number of Christians I know that, my goodness, that do not end well. We were talking this morning a little bit about that, yeah, just that their lives do not end well. It's become more and more common. So I think linger and, and reflect on, on the life of Solomon. Because I think there's something there that as Christians we really need to get hold of. Now next week we're going to find out very quickly how things begin to disintegrate. And we're going to look, uh, so do your reading for this week. Um, now when you do your reading, I guarantee you, you're going to read some stories and you'll be like, that's so interesting. What is going on? Because <laughs> there's some very difficult passages. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to explain them well because I don't fully understand them. But they're really interesting. It's not like they're boring. They're super interesting. But I'm like, God, what are you saying in this passage? And so uh, we will have a lot of fun when we come across some prophets and, and some strange dealings uh, that they have. So, um, Any questions before we uh, move on from Solomon? Any comments you want to make about Solomon? Observations that you've made along the way? What about the... Uh, I'll have to look at that, Suzanne. I'm not sure. I, I mean, if it's Jeremiah, it certainly is, is after the time of kings. It's, it's the time of exile, right? But I'll have to follow that up. What chapters are you supposed to read? Uh, it's in your notes. <laughs> what are they? 13 to, 16. 13 to 16. And for a bonus, you can start at 12 because we never really talked about chapter 12 tonight. So 12 to 16? Is that right? To 16? Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Well, let's pray and we will go from here. Lord, we thank you for the gift of warning. Lord, you love us so much that you know that when our lives are such that we put any other gods before you or we try to reduce you and make you into something you're not, our lives do not work. Lord, we are thankful for the warnings that we see in the life of Solomon. And we do pray that along the way that we, you would help to fix our eyes upon you and to keep our eyes fixed upon you. And we pray that you, that we'd be able to speak into each other's lives, um, that we could speak the truth in love into each other's lives and, and to say what we're seeing and to warn one another as uh, those in the watchtower can see <laughs> And warn when, when, when danger is coming. And so thank you for the life of Solomon and for the, uh, the lessons that we can learn from his life. And we do pray as we move on that we wouldn't just quickly forget and focus on something else. But you would help integrate them into our lives and into our hearts. We commit our lives to you. Go before us in all that we say and do. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.